Good morning, everyone. Welcome to day five of the 7am Novelist March March Writing Challenge. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Today we have Julie Carrick Dalton. She's one of my favorite writers. She's also a friend, and I was lucky enough to watch her revise her first novel, Waiting for the Night Song. Her writing career has completely exploded ever since, and today she's going to be talking to us about visual graphing, which is a way to kind of manage your novel structure and plot as you're working on your revisions and planning it out the, the first draft as well. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Julie Carrick-Dalton is the Boston-based author of Waiting for the Night Song, named a most anticipated 2021 novel by CNN, Newsweek, USA Today, Parade, and a whole bunch of others. She's uh, also an Amazon editor's pick for Best Books of the Month, a Breadloaf, Tin House, and Grub Street Novel Incubator alum. Uh, and she's a frequent speaker on the topic of fiction in the age of climate crisis at universities, conferences, libraries, and museums. When she isn't writing, you can find Julie digging in her garden, skiing, kayaking, or walking her dogs. She's very busy. Um, again, her second novel, The Last Beekeeper, is coming out on March 7th, which is in two days from when you be viewing this recording. Congratulations, Julie. I'm so excited for this book. Yay! <laughs> she just held up a copy. If you're listening on the podcast, you can see uh, the copy of her cover, which is a gorgeous cover um, online. All right, Julie, visual graphing. What what are you talking about? What is this? <laughs> what is it? And why do you do it? Well, I, sometimes I feel like my plot gets really messy inside my head. And you probably have some firsthand knowledge of this because you've seen early versions of my plot and I don't have good control over plot. Um, it's like a mess no in my head. No one would <laughs> have any, because you have these, you, your books have these beautiful plots when, when they're published. It takes some work to wrangle them into, into shape, though. And I'm also one of those people that see things in color in my head a lot, like, you know, days of the week and numbers and letters, like all have very concrete color assignments to them. And so my characters all like to kind of take on colors to me. So graphing in color helps me see my book. You don't need to be at seek the world that way for this strategy to work. But what I do is I get those, those giant poster boards, you know, those giant sticky notes you use in presentations that you, so I get one of those or poster board or however you, you know, whatever, but something big. And I make a big chart. Um, and so on the, like, on the vertical um, is like, I, I put a scale of one to 10 of like the um, tension or suspense as it builds in the story. And along the um, horizontal axis, I put my chapters. And so I, so if you imagine, so the vertical is this, the tension level, like the rising action and across the bottom, I do every chapter, lay them out. And, but I put a lot more than just the chapters along that bottom axis. So I will put um, uh, the colors of each character. Like I, every character has a color. Um, I also put colors for relationships. Like if there's a romance or a father, daughter, like at the last beekeeper, there's a very important relationship in the book between the beekeeper and his daughter. There's also a romantic thread in the book. So the characters have a color, the arcs have a color, the, um, and the suspense of like the story arc has a color. So I can see each of these separately. But what's interesting is when you put all the graphs on top of each other, because you see how they interact with each other. And that's where this, to me, um, helps me see my book. If all the characters are, you know, their, their tension is spiking at the same moment, that might not be a good thing. It might be better to have, and especially if you have a dual timeline narrative. So right. both of my books, uh, Waiting for the Night Song and The Last Beekeeper, are dual timeline. And the one I'm writing right now has three point of views. 
So I put them, I, I map out the whole book and I can see time speaking to each other. I can see where I'm handing off the, if the tension's rising in one timeline and I switch to the other timeline and it's at a lull. Is that a good thing? Like maybe the, the reader needs a break for a minute to catch their breath from a really intense scene in the other timeline. But what it helps me also see is if one character is not getting enough attention, if they're not getting enough play, if they yeah. aren't being brought into the action. And so for me, I can step back and just see how they're interacting. I know that this is going to be on a podcast, so I'm going to try to explain this, but I'm going to just show you a quick picture of what a, a rudimentary version of one of my graphs looks like. So you can see this. Can you see it? She's showing us is a many backed horse. Um, <laughs> um, it, it's a drawing that shows uh, the line and the different the different arcs. And also, what's clear on it is the the basically the, the climax moment of of each arc. And we can see let's see, you've got about five ones on there, so we can see the different turning points or the different um, <clears throat> uh, pivot points that sometimes people call them on the way to the climax and then but those climax hit at different moments which is really important um but they also hit it looks like at mm, the, the three-fourths way point really which is where you want them so you can kind of get that get yeah, and the, this is a, a later graph so my early graphs they were all over the place you know the 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 um they weren't all hitting at the right time i i saw characters who were spiking too early or spiking too many times yeah. and i could control the visual um so I, I i don't know if you remember this michelle but i brought this exact graph into class when i was in your novel incubator class and i remember showing it to you and you looked at it and you turned your head sideways and you said that looks like a horse running i was like <laughs> It kind of does the way that all the angles are in this graph. And then when I did my second book, The Last Beekeeper, I showed it to my husband and he looked at it, turned his head sideways and he's like, huh, that book looks like a grasshopper. So now I am graphing my new book. It's called The Forest Becomes Her. And I see no animals in it at all. And I'm convinced I need to keep working the graph until an animal emerges. And then I know I found my story. <laughs> that it looks like it has energy right yeah, yeah. i yeah. love that title the animal becomes her no 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 the, the, the forest, forest becomes, becomes her. her see i put the animal in it already yeah, there you go um, it's in there somewhere so so this i love this and, and we do talk about this in the novel incubator and i do encourage other novelists to think about it so not only um i get this question all the time so if people say well if i have um, multiple storylines following following different points of view. So like two, what you're talking about is you've, you've had two timelines, two storylines in your book. Um, and really like in, in, in your first book, you had her young journey, your main character and her older journey. Um, so that would also be separate that you were plotting probably, right? Yeah. So they're um, on separate charts, but I do merge them later onto one right, chart. Right. Yes. Um, so, but even if you have not separate timelines, but the same timeline, and yet you have arcs for um, several main characters, particularly the point of view characters, yes, you do need to follow their journeys all the way through um and and then allow them to help each other out um so that slow parts in one um character's journey um might help to pace out um fast parts in another character's journey and the fast parts in another character's journey can actually carry the slower and back and forth like that um and then even more importantly i think people they think oh i'm just following character arcs but, but relationship arcs 
are huge because we need to see those relationships. Um, oftentimes, oftentimes we're seeing just the beginning of the relationships, people meet, and then we see it develop, grow, change, complicate, um, possibly the relationship having a, a giant hiccup in the middle of it and, and them fighting or something. And then, but that usually creates to another development. So that's a really important arc to follow and to look at where it hits that climax moment. Um, and then uh, suspense, I think you talked of, I, I oftentimes talk about mysteries or questions following those arcs, like where do I answer, where's the question answered in the full book? Um, and so there, there can be all sorts of arcs, you can have thematic arcs, um, all sorts of arcs that you're following it just the problem is, if you actually paid attention to all the arcs, you'd have hundreds, right? Like, right. You actually have <laughs> yeah, you might want to rein it in a little bit, find the ones that are important. Find the ones that are important um, because you're not going to be able to, you're actually not going to be able to graph all of them or you, you, you'll drive yourself crazy. And I should um, say that I don't do this before I write a book. I, I do this after I have a draft in place and it shows right. me the problem spots. It shows me where I'm missing something or where too much is happening. And then as I revise, I go back and look at the look at, I re-graph it so that I can see the shape of the story. And it really does become the shape of a story. Um, because you yeah. see the colors interacting, the angles changing, um, you know, like you're talking about relationship arcs might have a hiccup in that uh, that book that I just showed you, the graph of the relationship bottoms out at one point while all the other arcs are going up, the relationship drops off. And that was really interesting to me because I didn't realize they were happening at the same time. It was a good thing, but I wasn't conscious I was doing it. Yeah. It's just a different way of seeing your book because lots of times we get too familiar with our books and we can't back away enough to be able to, to see them. And so this is just, just another tool that you can use um, to see your book, to see how it's working and then react to what you see on the page. And there's no, I don't think any one way, there's no right way to do it. There's no wrong way to do it. It's just however you're building a map that allows, that gives you that mirror, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you say that you don't, you write your draft first and then you do this. And a lot of writers will write reverse outlines after they do their first draft. Um, and a reverse outline is not a backward outline. It's actually doing it after you've written it. Um, again, to give you that mirror to the process or the mirror to the book. Um, for I think though, there's a lot of people that might want to do it ahead of time or feel like they should do it ahead of time. Why do you, why are you backing away from it? I mean, I have an answer. I think, I actually think it's a good thing that you do it after the first draft, but for you, why do you do it after your first draft? Um, sometimes I don't know where it's going. And sometimes until I'm, you know, in, in the driver's seat of the story, I don't know where it's going to, you know, where I'm going to turn. And um, so I do outline, I did not plot out my first book at all and waiting for the night song I just kind of just threw it out on the page which was a problem <laughs> but um, for the last beekeeper and for the forest becomes her I did a good detailed outline so I had something to work from but not a visual like I didn't know what it looked like but when I, I wrote the draft and then I teased it apart so I could see what I had what what the visual representation of this story was um because i i don't know why in my brain just read like looking at a, an outline has no dimension to me like i don't see tension i don't see suspense i don't see the problem points or anything dramatic i i, I like drama you know i want to see spikes i want to see color and it helps my brain understand 
it, it almost is like a representation of the emotions in the stories in some way. And so I don't feel like I really understand my story until I can see what it, the shape of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important. You know, some people are much more visual learners. Some people, um, some people are okay with staying in that narrative line. Um, and again, writing a reverse outline, I know Matt Bell talks about, he actually writes a, a narrative kind of summary for his books after his first draft, um, which I think is great. It's it's not something that I would want to do because, again, I want to put it in a different sort of context entirely. Um, so visual is a great way to go. It also feels a little bit more physical. So if you're, if you're, and Julie, I know that you, you like to work in your garden, you like to be physical. So you like to probably even be able to move things around for people that do really like to move things around. I also encourage using cards or things that, you know, pieces of paper that they can actually physically swap around and tape up and do that sort of thing. Um, and some people even, you know, like for, for, more finished drafts, even recording themselves uh, reading it, mm -hmm. um, that can use your, you know, your your ear to be able to hear what you're doing. So, because again, I just think you need to put it in different contexts in order to defamiliarize it, and in order to really see what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't actually thought about it like that, but the physical part of it, I think, is is important because one time I tried doing this graph and on a computer, like I went to a program to put all the dots in, it was completely unsatisfying to me. I had absolutely no interest in ever looking at it again. I wanted a gigantic piece of paper and a box of Crayola color pencils. <laughs> and that to me, I, I want to, I want to, you know, feel the pencil on the page and, you know, darken the color if it's not dark enough. That's fantastic. So you said for your first book, you did this. Now you use a big you use a big board is are you using dry erase marker to do this or no no i use color pencil yeah color so color pencil on paper yeah um and then you scribble and change it and stuff and then i do a new piece of paper because it's like oh this is getting too messy yeah i do and i mean it is time consuming i suspect that this whole process is giving some of your listeners hives thinking about <laughs> even thinking about doing this so it's not yeah. for everybody but for but for people who want to see it I think the building of it, like the physical, you know, drawing of it, the, the erasing, the scratching things out and moving things is, is, it's editing, you know, it's, it's a form of editing your story when I, you know, and I also put all the word count for every chapter um, in the chapter, like on, along that bottom axis. So I can see if I have a spike, is that a 1500 word chapter or a 5,000 word chapter? Like how long did it take to get to that spike? Because I think that that's important too. So I think everybody has different things they need to understand about their book. And you can put anything you want in there. You know, you can add, yeah. there's tons of things I haven't thought of. And I do, I think in particular, noticing this, the points where you've forgotten a character <laughs> or they, they just step out too long. Like, where did Simon go? Like Simon, he's like on, having his own little vacation from your book and you actually need him in the book because it's really important. Yeah. Um, and or thematic threads or mysteries or whatever, because it's so it really, you're like, oh, wait, there's no orange there, right? Because you're doing color coding um, and it just pops and you can really see that. Okay. Let's talk about then how you use this specifically for your first book. What sort of changes once you made that graph? 
what changes did you find you did it? And how, did you do multiple graphs every time you made changes or? No, I waited till I had like a, a solid-ish draft. There were several several points in the process where I had a revision that I felt was ready to hand in it into you at class or ready to hand off to a beta reader or you know, something. So it was like a what I thought was a good solid next version. I just, I don't do a ton of these along the way. But but what I what I would do is, for the first book, I just wrote this book and it was a big mess. It was a dual timeline narrative. Um, and the, the biggest um, benefit I found with my first book in doing this was how to weave the two stories together. Like you mentioned that they're in that waiting for the night song, there's a, the little girls, you know, she's the same character and it's Katie and she's 11 or she's in her thirties and the chapters go back and forth where you hand off from one timeline to the next timeline is important. Like when you're revealing information, and when you leave one timeline and enter another timeline, is there is there something that can carry you in? And so when I would graph it, and I was looking at the um, looking at what was happening in the two different timelines, it was it, I was able to see, you know, maybe these chapters shouldn't be next to each other. You know, right. maybe there needs to be a breath between a climax in one chapter and a climax, in, I mean, in one timeline and the climax in the next timeline. Maybe the reader needs needs to take a little bit of a breath and have just a quieter moment. Or am I building, like, am I ratcheting it up and up and up and up and so that the, all I'm having a several high tension chapters in a row. But it helps you see where you, where the timelines are talking to each other. And that's what I think I did not do a good job with in the early drafts of Waiting for the Night Song. I think I was randomly changing times. I was just like, okay, time to go to the other timeline. And I wasn't, there wasn't a logic or a, um, a strategy. And so when I could see them, I could see, I, see the strategy where it was missing. And so the strategy became really those, um, those turning points that you wanted to juxtapose. Sometimes, of, yeah. yeah. Sometimes you're juxtaposing ideas, like, you know, like, you know, if something great is happening in one timeline and something's bad happening in another, the tension, like when they rub up against each other can be good. But also, um, you know, there was a, a, a relationship in that book when they're little kids and the same two people relationship when they're adults are very different relationships. And sometimes highlighting how different they are right up against each other reveals something about the characters. Yeah, yeah, nice. And that sort of book, so the trick with that sort of book is your more current timeline can give away things that you don't want to give away because you still want to keep the tension in the past timeline. And so that's the sort of thing that can make people just stop writing all together because it's so complex. It becomes such a puzzle. How did you go about that? Like not revealing two things too soon or revealing things only when they were most important with those two timelines? That was a real puzzle for me because I originally wrote it all chronologically. It wasn't in, in the first versions of this book were not, um, the chapters weren't interwoven. It was completely chronological. And so I had a lot of things I had to undo when I, when I took the chapters and, you know, wove them together um, because you're exactly right. So I had to go through the fine tooth comb and, and realize like, I can't say, you know, this person is dead or this person is alive if that question is hanging over you in the past timeline. Right. Um, so I had to be very careful. I think some of the lessons I learned writing the first book um, were infinitely valuable on in how to not write a book. You know, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. learned, I learned all the things not to do 
And so it made writing the second book a lot easier. A lot of the craft lessons that you taught us in the incubator, um, I find myself like thinking on them all the time because I didn't know that when I wrote that first book. And so even with this graph, on this on these graphs that I make are a lot of like Michelle Hoover fingerprints, you know, of things that like um, for especially things about desires and needs and wants. You were always yeah. pushing me. Like, what is, what does she need? What did she need when she walked in this room? Like, what is what is the desire? What is the outcome the expectation? And so I was asking myself those questions a lot, and that really um, changed the pace of my second book when I was drafting it. I was like, oh, I know the questions to ask this time. And so it made so many fewer drafts so that I had to write of the second book. Nice. Um, and what's so great about teaching this sort of thing is that I'll go home to my own writing and go, oh, I'm not doing this that I just taught today. Wait a minute, Michelle. So yeah, it, it's good to constantly, because there's so much to keep in mind that uh, as you're working through that, it's always good to kind of put yourself in the student's position, I think. And I do yeah. that um, to, to re-see and relearn as you're going. Okay. So in your second novel, now your second novel is coming out now. So you might not be able to talk about it fully because you don't want to give anything away, but I saw a first draft of that novel that I think is extremely different than what you eventually did with it. Correct. Yeah. Very, very different. Yeah. So it's, again, it's a dual timeline novel again. And again, it's an 11 year old girl and her adult self. I have a and the little teaser is my third book also has the point of view of an 11-year-old girl. Something must have happened to me when I was an 11-year-old child and I repressed it because I cannot write a book without the point of view of an 11-year-old girl. But so in the, in the, um, the last Beekeeper, I had um, the 11-year-old girl setting on a farm and it felt very natural to me to write this. I, I grew up in, in the outside, in nature, and the farm feels like a great place for me to be free in, as a writer. Her adult timeline, she was living in an apartment in a city, and it's set in the near future. And I was really spending a lot of time making sure you really understood the currency situation, the political backdrop, all the dynamics of the society. And I went way, way too much detail. And that's the version I think you read. Yeah. And my editor at some point was like, you know what? You're not great with cities, Julie. And I'm like, oh, okay. And she's like, get her out of the city and bring her home. And so get her, get her in nature, basically get her hands in the dirt. Because if my characters aren't near dirt, <laughs> I, I can't understand them. So I had to, I got her out of the city. And so the main through line of the story is the same as what you read. It's a similar story, but it's in a different setting, which means I had to rewrite the entire second timeline from scratch. It wasn't revising it. I rewrote the whole thing. It was excruciating, but it was very, very good advice. It's a lesson learned. I, I love, my editor, I love that your editor, it was your editor you said, not your agent? Yeah, my editor. I love that your editor did that because she just saved you so much time. Though at the time you were probably horrified. Oh yeah, absolutely. In <laughs> fact, we delayed the publishing of this book. I, 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 this book should have been out last year, yeah. but she said she was, you know, she'll, she just gives it to me straight. She's like, we can either, you know, rush through this and work with the, this draft you've given me, or we can wait and make it the book I know you want it to be. And I took option B and rewrote the whole second timeline from scratch. And I'm so happy with it. I love it. I'm really, really happy with how that turned out. I love the characters are bigger. They're more, they're fuller. And I'm a happier writer in that space. So note to self, 
don't write in the city because I'm not good at it. <laughs> so when I read it, I'm going to be completely confused because I'm going to be, but what happened to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just... In terms of visual graphing with your second novel, was it was the process or you said you said it looked like a grasshopper, not a horse, I think. Like, did it, did your process or your choices in doing the graphic, how were they different? Did you, you change it at all? Um, it was, it was basically the same process, but I would a much more detailed with the beekeeper. The last beekeeper has uh, the graph. I'm not going to show it to you because it'll make you dizzy and want to get, get sick, but it has so many elements on it. On the bottom horizontal part, I had like the, the word count of every chapter. I have a little dot for a color-coded dot of every character in that scene. Um, I have this tension level of each scene. I have the character arcs. It's all in one big giant graph, which only I can understand. But I took all the things that worked when I graphed um, Waiting for the Night Song. I put those into the beekeeper graph, but I added other elements to it because to me, and I go back to, that's the things I go back to this graph all the time. It is, it wasn't just the exercise of doing it. I go back to it all the time. When I was finishing up beekeeper, I would, I would say, you know, where was, you know, where, you know, when these two had a fight, what was this character doing in the past timeline? And I could look right at it and it, it helped me in my revision. You know, in those last stages of revising a book, when you're going through and you're polishing up those little details and making sure the timing is right. It was an invaluable tool in that final draft. I mean, just, and to find things, like if I was searching for something, it, to be able to look at the my graph and say, oh, that's where her heart broke. Or, oh, yeah. that's where she fell in love. Or, you know, to find that visually is, um, it's so worth the time that it took to do it. Yeah, because the problem with the novel is so difficult to keep it in your head all at once because it's so large. Um, and with our busy lives, we tend to forget things. Um, and so, so having something easy that you can just kind of look at like that, that is going to remind you of things is huge. Yeah. It's like a uh, draft, correct? What's your that? third novel? You're, you're, you're heading your way in your third novel. Yeah. Yeah, I have, I have a full draft of the third novel. Um, it's due to my editor on uh, November 1st. Um, so think good thoughts for me in October. I will be very stressed out, <laughs> um, but I'm really happy with it. It's weirder. It's a little dark. I feel all my books are going in the direction of each one getting a little bit weirder and a little bit darker <laughs> um, with each book. Um, so I'm I'm like, you know, that's I'm just going to follow that because it's working. That's fantastic. I love it. Okay. We're going to have to go, um, but for everyone who's listening, you can find our full March writing challenge schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates and join the discussion there. Um, if you want to join our daily webinars in March, email me at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Those are held on Zoom and it's the separate uh, registration process. You can also find the podcast version of these webinars on Spotify, Apple, and other podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners. So Julie, one last question. Are you able to get some writing done today? I am, but it's not going to be on my book. I'm, as I'm heading into the launch, I have a whole lot of interviews and Q&As and little things like that and some essays that I'm, I'm writing in conjunction with my book launch. So yes, I will be writing, but it will not be on the book. But tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to write. 
Excellent, excellent. Yes, that's what you have to do when you put a book out, especially all those essays and other things writing around the book. Though sometimes the, that stuff can be fun too, right? Yeah. You're writing about a little bit more directly some of the themes that you wanted to approach. Okay, thank you so much, Julie. I just loved having you on. I'm so excited for your book. Again, it's going to blow my mind when I read the new version. <laughs> It'll be like an entirely new book. Um, so thank you all. I hope you're able to get started on your writing day. Happy writing!